And at this time, I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. And it may be a little difficult to follow along today since I'll be um, reading just selected verses from those two chapters. But let me explain a bit uh, why we're diving into 2 Kings. So we have been in the midst of a series on the book of Daniel um, throughout the last couple of months. Our small groups are studying this as well. And we're about to enter into the second part of the book of Daniel, which includes a lot of apocalyptic literature, some of the visions that Daniel has and interprets and those kinds of things. It's, it's kind of a difficult road to hoe. And so I thought it would be good to give us sort of the story behind the story, the background to the book of Daniel, and that's given us in, uh, in the book of 2 Kings. And so uh, we're going to take a look at the end of the history of, of the, the nation of Judah this morning. And so we'll begin reading with 2 Kings 24. I'll begin reading with verse 1 there, 2 Kings 24, verse 1, and we'll conclude with a couple of verses from 2 Kings 25. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then... He turned against Nebuchadnezzar and rebelled. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. Jehoiakim rested with his ancestors, and Jehoiakim, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of king the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon, 
He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and a 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. He made Madaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. It was because of the Lord's anger. This is verse 20 now. It was because of the Lord's anger that this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. In the end, he thrust them from his presence. Then we turn over to 2 Kings 25, verse 21. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. And then down to verse 27, the last few verses of the book of 2 Kings. In the, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year Awel Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of, of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we were eating lunch in the kitchen the other day Lily, our little two-year-old, was seated at, seated at the kitchen counter, and I was watching her, and she began taking little pieces of cheese off of her plate and dropping them on the floor. And I couldn't resist, and I said, Lily, <clears throat> why are you dropping your cheese on the floor? Yes, she said. I said, Lily, why are you doing that? Yes. Now, she's a smart little girl, but apparently two-year-olds just aren't that smart that they can answer the question, why, right? The question we all want to know. Why? Yes. In the book of Daniel, what all of the exiles want to know is why they're in Babylon. Why are we here? Why are we in exile? Why are we 400 miles from our homes, 400 miles from our traditions? Why were there no turkeys for Thanksgiving, no pumpkin pies? Why no Advent candles to light? Why had they lost their land, their king, their traditions, their temple, their God? Why? That's what they wanted to know. The exiles wanted an answer to the why question. And that's exactly what we find, friends, in the books of the kings. And it wasn't just the exiles who wanted them to know the answer. It was God himself who wanted them to know the answer. 
You see, there are some questions that we say we want answers to, we want to know the reasons for, but in reality, I wonder, do we really want to know? For instance, why is my marriage so rocky? Why is my cholesterol so high? Why are my kids so selfish? We ask those questions, we say we want to know the answers, but in reality, I wonder, do we really want to know? Or, in the words of Jack Nicholson, maybe we just can't handle the truth. I have a feeling that may be the case for the people of Israel, for God's people in Babylon. They think they want to know the answer to the why question, but do they really? The answer is going to be hard to hear. I won't keep you in suspense. The answer comes in verse 20 of chapter 24. It reads simply this way. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. This didn't happen by chance. The people didn't just happen to lose their land. Nebuchadnezzar didn't just happen to take over the nation of Judah. This happened because of God. God sent his people into exile. There is no doubt about it. The text says it over and over again. God did this. God did this to his people. That's why they're there. The story of, of the people of Israel, the people of Judah, it, it, it doesn't start as sadly as it ends. The story of the kings begins with God's people on the very top of the world. I mean, Solomon, the son of David, is on his throne, and, and Israel is actually at its apex. Solomon builds a temple for his God, the likes of which really no one has ever seen before. Solomon goes on to build a palace for himself that's as gaudy as Giannis's championship ring. Israel is a power to be reckoned with in the world. She possesses most of the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Her reputation is gratifying and growing. And at this zenith of Israel's history, God comes to Solomon with a promise. And he says this, he says, Solomon, if you walk before me with integrity of heart and with uprightness, I will establish your royal throne over Israel for what? Forever, forever. Imagine that. Things are good and God says, Solomon, it can be this way forever. But he goes on. But, he says, but if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you, then I will cut Israel off from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. 
And friends, here we have the standard by which the rest of the book will operate. The failure or the success of the kings of Israel and Judah will not be determined by how many battles they win or how far they extend their borders or how much slave labor they subdue or the quantity of gold that they put into their treasuries. Their success will not be judged by the same standards that the kings of all the other nations are judged. Their success will be judged according to this one thing. How faithful are you to the Lord your God? Will you obey? How faithful are you to the Lord your God? And according to that standard, friends, we begin to see cracks and fissures already in Solomon himself. It was just a couple of chapters after this promise that God makes to Solomon that we read these words, Solomon loved many foreign women. He loved many foreign women. The Apostle Paul would later instruct us to never let or to never give evil a foothold. And here we see the reason why foreign women, they become just one small crack in Solomon's character, but his sin actually becomes a canyon in the life of his son, Rehoboam. And if you know the story, you know that God takes ten of the twelve tribes from Rehoboam, and they become the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. The two other tribes become the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. And from here on out, the two will always remain separate. Israel's kings, the kings of the northern kingdom, quickly abandon the Lord and they lead their people into all kinds of idolatry. You can read the stories. They adopt the gods of the nations around them, and they give these gods actually their own worship spaces right within the land of Israel. And we hear the following refrain, like a, a drumbeat or a bass line beating throughout the story of Israel's history. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin. And the sin of Jeroboam, of course, is the sin of idolatry. Things were not a whole lot better for Judah and its kings. At first, things looked a little more hopeful for Judah because their rulers actually came from the line of David. They are David's seed. And yet, even though every once in a while we hear that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as often we hear the words that they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And things keep on getting worse until we finally encounter a king by the name of Manasseh. You heard his name mentioned in our text this morning. Chapter 21 really tells his story. It only takes a couple of verses to summarize things. This is what it says. Manasseh, king of Judah, has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Now, the Amorites, they were actually the people who occupied the land of Canaan before Israel entered the land. They pushed the Amorites out. 
and the justification for removing these peoples from the land was that they did not worship the true God. They worshiped idols, and the land belonged to God himself. Here, the text tells us that Manasseh did more evil than the Amorites who were in the land ahead of him. Therefore, God, the God of Israel says, I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And so the story of the kings, first and second kings, turns out to be the story of an, of an apocalypse. It covers about 400 years of history and about 40 kings. 20 kings in the north, 20 kings in the south. Israel is taken over by the Assyrians and they are no more. Judah hangs in there just a little bit longer before they are taken over by the Babylonians. And they are no more. And that's what these last few chapters of the book of 2 Kings tell us about. We could read... But we read about a couple of them. Let me just share the histories of the last four kings of Judah. They go like this. Jehoahaz rules for three months, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He's taken prisoner by Egypt, and he dies in chains. And then Jehoiakim is next. That's who we read about beginning our text. He was king for 25 years, but he too did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he dies with Jerusalem surrounded by the Babylonian army. And then we get his son Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah as he's sometimes called. He too does evil in the eyes of the Lord. He reigns just three months before the Babylonians actually break through the walls. And they chain him up and they take him to Babylon for the next 40 years and throw him in prison. At this point, friends, Judah is done. The nation of Judah is no more. The Babylonians are now in charge. They, they do put Zedekiah on the throne. Zedekiah is Jehoiakim's uncle, so he was a brother of Jehoiakim. But Zedekiah is just a puppet king. Although somebody seemed to have forgotten to tell him that because he does rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and this time Nebuchadnezzar spares no mercy. And Zedekiah is actually forced to witness the murder of his sons before he has his own eyes plucked out. And then he himself is hauled off to Babylon as punishment. Meanwhile, the walls of Jerusalem are torn down. The leaders of the people, the best of the priests and the nobles of the city, all of them are executed by Nebuchadnezzar. The rest of them are shipped off to exile. The only ones left are the very, very poor who are left in the area to farm the land so they have some things to give to the Babylonians. Jerusalem itself is gutted by fire. The temple is completely destroyed. And the beautiful items that are set in the temple by Solomon, the bronze pillars, the wick trimmers, the dishes, the sprinkling bowls, all of them are carried off to Babylon. Or to Babylon. Jim Ventolin writes, describes it this way, he says, the vessels of the Lord end up decorating the pawn shops of Babylon. 
scrap metal. And then the narrator sums it all up for us. Judah went into captivity away from her land. She was no more. She was done. Everything that Solomon had built, all of it was gone. The temple, the palace, the riches, the land, all of it gone. No more. There are, there are two markers that, that the, uh, the narrator of the text actually throws at us just to emphasize the fact that Israel is no more. The first comes in uh, chapter 25, verse 8, if you still have your Bibles open. It says there, it's kind of a throwaway line, right? On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. In the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, why is that so important? Well, up until now, the calendar has always been kept according to the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah. For instance, we would read in the 10th year of Hezekiah, king of Judah, this is what happened. In the 13th year of so-and-so, this is what happened. Now we're on the Babylonian calendar. In the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, when you walk into your office and your office calendar is on the wall, there's no longer a picture of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem that's on the cover. Now it's, it's the hanging gardens of Babylon. Judah is no more. The second marker comes in chapter 20, or verse 26 of chapter 25. It says this, At this all the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. Where did they flee to? To Egypt. The narrator is telling us that this is the exodus in reverse. This is the exodus being undone. The unimaginable is happening here. The people that God redeemed from Egypt, pulled out of slavery in Egypt, He is now sending them back into Egypt. Back into slavery. They are no more. Judah is done. Which brings us back to that question of why. <clears throat> why was Judah dead and gone? And the answer shouldn't really come as a surprise to anyone. God told his people way back in Deuteronomy and Leviticus already that if they did not serve him absolutely, if they flirted with other gods and tried to worship Yahweh on a part-time basis, God warned them that He would take away their land. He warned them that He would scatter them among the nations. He warned them that they would be no more. And that's what they are. They cease to exist. Why are we in exile? 
because we have sinned against the Lord our God. Friends, why are we in exile? Why? It's not just a question for our ancestors. It's a question for us as well. And it's an answer for us as well. The God of 2 Kings, you see, is also the God of Luke 2 and the God of Christmas and the God of Jesus Christ. There is not two gods that we're talking about here. There are not two gods. There is one God. And He is not a God who goes easy on sin. He doesn't just turn the other way. He is a God who punishes sin. He is a God who defends His honor. He is a God who will not tolerate divided loyalties, not among any of His people. End of story. End of story. And yet it's not the end of the story. The story doesn't end with verse 26 of chapter 25. The story doesn't end with the Jews either dead or in Babylon or fleeing to Egypt in fear. The story doesn't end with that dark day in Jerusalem. It doesn't end with the destruction of a nation. The story actually ends with the release of one person. One person. You may have thought that those closing verses to our text were a little strange. But I'd like you to hear them again. The book of Kings ends with the release of King Jehoiakim the last legitimate ruler of Judah. After being kept in a cell for 37 years, he's released. He's given a place of honor at the king's table. He trades his prison clothes for a fancy robe. And the king of Babylon supports him for the rest of his life. And that's how the book ends. Not with a description of how the rest of the Jewish nation is either in chains or in exile or in slavery or dead. It ends by saying that one of them, one of them still eats like a king. And that too, friends, is a word about our God. I mentioned the name Jim Ventolin earlier. Jim was a friend of mine from seminary. He wrote a sermon on this text. I want to share with you a few of his words here. This is what he wrote. It seems certain that if God's people abandoned him, that he would abandon them. He would destroy their nation, empty their cities, remove their kings. But he doesn't leave it that way. He never leaves it that way. Instead, the last thing we read is that the future that disappeared completely in Jerusalem has popped up again in, of all places, Babylon. 
King Jehoiakim reigned for three short months, but still found time to do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. But by the grace of God, destruction is not the last word on him. Matthew will see to that. His is the last word on King Jehoiakim. And he tells us that Jehoiakim was the father of Salaltiel. And Salaltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the ancestor of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph. And Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called the Christ. And that, of course, is the last word on all of us sinners who earn only God's judgment, but still somehow receive his Son. Friends, there's more than one why question in this text. It's not just why are we in exile. There's another question. Why are sinners like us invited to be royal guests at the table of our King, Jesus? Why? Yes. Why? Yes. God's grace just doesn't make sense. But it should make us grateful. Let's come to the table of our Lord. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we come to your table this morning with the question, why, on our minds? Why have I been invited to this table? We don't understand your grace. We can't wrap our minds around it. And yet we revel in it. And we are so grateful for it. And we come. We come to you. Our incredible, loving, merciful, and gracious God. Accept us at your table this morning by your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.